Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Uh, the Minister of Finance, the Attorney General and I have just left Cabinet. Uh, where we have uh, agreed and passed the appropriate orders to hold a public inquiry yes. into gaming and uh, money laundering and the whole range of other activities that have flowed from the investigations that have been underway since we were sworn in as government. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver's son, columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Right here we go with another podcast. That, of course, the voice of Premier John Horgan announcing a long-awaited public inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia, and that was just one of the highlights of, I got to say, a pretty wild week in BC politics. Rob, it's never dull around here, but this this week stands out. There's so much news; it burns so brightly. Do not look directly at the news; it will blind <laughs> you. There's so much of it. We're yeah. gonna. This is a special edition of the podcast. We're on a different day because we want to hit on two big topics. The public inquiry, Smitty, yeah, and then the gi- ginormous—that's a technical term—ginormous report from uh, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin and all those uh, spending shenanigans at the legislature, which we've been talking about on many a pod in the yes. previous cast. Yeah. So, but we should start with the public inquiry. Um, you have burned many columns on this issue and done many talk radio segments over the last uh, few months. Were you at all surprised? Uh, at the public inquiry, I'm not even going to refer you to how you predicted it in our uh, New Year's uh, resolution podcast. But were you, you know, rewrite history for us and tell you tell us if you were surprised? No, I, in some ways I was not surprised because I thought the government was telegraphing this pretty clearly over the last few weeks that they were going to do this, and no government in its right mind is going to raise expectations in the public and then come out at the last minute and say, ah, you know what, we're not going to do it after all now. So I think over the last two, three weeks, it started to become clear this is the road they're going to go down, and it's a public inquiry that John Horgan had thrown some cold water on in the past. He had criticized it, the idea as something that can take a long time, cost a lot of money, and not potentially not generate the results that you want. He had a change of heart. I don't think he wanted to do this at first, but he came around to it. And I think there's a number of factors that that triggered that. I think there was the uh, the media interest in it. There's there is of course the the Peter German reports that keep piling up these shocking reports. Uh, there was pressure from municipal governments there, and there was the opinion polling that showed this is what people wanted. And I think this is a case of the government giving the people what they want. And so I wasn't surprised, but at the same time, in that news conference this week, and I'm watching him call it and describing the 
pretty significant powers that this commissioner will have to compel testimony, production of evidence, hold people in contempt if they don't cooperate, like pretty significant powers for this inquiry. It was still a real kind of moment, I thought, in uh, recent BC political history on a big story that this is really uh, a big a big event, a big development in this. So not surprising, but it was still very dramatic. And it's going to be really uh, intriguing to watch this thing unfold here. What do you make of the time limit? I hate to be cynical. That's Go just, ahead. No, I don't. I love it. I love being <laughs> cynical. But the timeline of this is just beautiful. If you're a New Democrat supporter, you have got a public inquiry. It's going to go on for 18 uh, months to a, two years, which will land by May of 2021, five months before the October 2021 election. provincial election. Right. That's fantastic timing for the New Democrats. It just happens to be uh, the old coinky dink there that this thing will bludgeon the NDP's opponents, the Liberals, they'll hoist Christy Clark, Rich Coleman, Shirley Bond, Mike DeYoung, everybody up on the stand, put them under oath, grill them on what they knew and didn't know, produce a report just in time to get the old election campaign going and just eviscerate the Liberals on a record of corruption and uh, and all sorts of problems. I I mean, that's either the the most spectacular coincidence in the world or a little bit of political engineering by the new you know democrats what? i don't think that's cynical at all i think that's just cutting the diamond as a good political analyst that you are because i think it's <laughs> uh this thing people should not uh be fooled on the political dimension of this thing right like i think they're doing the right thing like i i think that the this money laundering situation is so disturbing to people um, the picture that's been painted of British Columbia is like a, a gangster's paradise with so many tentacles of this thing uh, slipping around. This is what people wanted, and I think it's the right thing to do. I think they put in a good commissioner. But is there a lot of politics going on with this thing? Yeah, you're darn right, because this thing is a political weapon that the NDP have used very effectively against the Liberals. All these reports from Peter German, every time they drop one of these reports, the Liberals take damage. And you can tell the NDP are now hoping that this public inquiry will inflict even more damage on the Liberals. And I thought the Liberals tried to put up a brave face on it this week. You know, Rich Coleman standing in front of the TV cameras saying, bring it on, Uh, this is great, I look forward to a public inquiry. I think in reality, if you were to give them a dose of truth serum, they would have to admit that they're nervous about it because I think they realize how much damage they can take. Yeah. Here's Premier John Horgan describing what he thinks this uh, inquiry is going to accomplish at his press conference where he's announcing it. I believe that British Columbians want to know how this was allowed to happen in British Columbia. The the, uh, commissioner is not constrained in terms of his timelines. He can go as far back as he needs to to get answers for British Columbians. This is about making sure that there's accountability. So you got to get answers. You got to make sure there's accountability. Um, Accountability, getting answers, naming names is another thing that Attorney General David Eby has said. They're not looking to name names of just anybody here. They're looking to name the names of the liberals. and the, Yeah, name liberal names. Name liberal names, not yeah. the other names. And yeah. I, I have to give the NDP credit because it's such a beautifully constructed argument they've come up with on cabinet confidentiality for the liberals. Like they have <laughs> – they've just boxed the liberals in in every possible way. They've said, we want the cabinet documents from the previous government. We want to know what they did on money laundering. We want to know, um, you know, what – who knew what and when and the liberals – 
are refusing, like any government before them has, to waive cabinet confidentiality. The NDP didn't waive cabinet confidentiality from the 90s either. That's right. But the NDP have managed to make it such an effective argument, you know? Like, they're not just wielding... Thor's hammer here in this thing. Yeah. They've got his his new axe too. They're double yeah. fisting this thing. And you know, you step back and you look at it and you think it's a masterful bit of political maneuvering oh, by, by David Eby and the New Democrats to just prosecute the liberal record so effectively on this file. Eby is a very, very clever politician who knows how to put the knife into his opponents with a straight face. You know, he's got ice in his veins and uh they know how much damage that they're inflicting on the liberals with this. And the whole thing about we want the liberals to unseal these secret cabinet documents and waive cabinet privilege, as it's called, in the public interest. Like they want to know, uh, Horgan is saying, we the liberals should disclose what they knew, when they knew it, what steps they took on this money laundering file when the price of houses were going through the stratosphere. And... You know, it's kind of an old political trick. Anytime there's any kind of a government in in any kind of a scandal or jam, the opposition will call on you very typically to waive cabinet privilege and and release these documents to the public. Nobody does it. And they never do it. No. And like you said, when the tables were turned in the 1990s when the NDP were in power on, guess what, a gambling scandal. I remember on the Casino Gate scandal that brought down Glenn Clark. Mm -hmm. And the liberals at that time were demanding that the NDP unseal secret cabinet documents about Glenn Clark and the Casino Gate scandal. And of course, the NDP didn't do it. And then the liberals turned around and said, what have you got to hide? Well, now it's precisely the same argument, but just with the two parties reversed. Because now Horgan knows darn well that the liberals are not going to unseal these cabinet documents. That's fine, because now he can just turn around and say, what have you got to hide? You know, so it's it is. I mean, it's really, really effective politics for them. And it could get it could get worse for the liberals. And the only risk to the New Democrats is that because a commissioner takes this over now, maybe they go back, uh, you know, to the 1990s and look at we've already seen a little bit of you trace back gaming policy in the province far enough, you end up back to decisions made in previous governments, including Mike Farmer, who was a 90s cabinet minister. Uh, maybe it gets back there. But John Horgan said when he was asked that question at a press conference, okay, maybe, but it's a pretty small amount of gambling that was going on in the 90s compared to now, which is true. But yeah. our colleague Von Palmer pointed out two NDP premiers fell on gambling-related issues. You had Bingo Gate and you had the uh, casino licenses for Glenn Clark. Yeah, yeah. Harcourt. And then you had Glenn Clark and the whole casino license deck repair thing. So. Right. It's small amounts, but, you know, it it can be a minefield when you go back a well, little bit. It, but I think clearly the NDP think whatever damage they can inflict on the liberals will be far, far better uh, and more damaging than any small thing that comes up from the 90s. I think that's precisely it, because if the, if the NDP had turned around and say, OK, we're going to have this public inquiry, but you can't go back and look. And we're only going to look at the last 16 years or, you know, when the liberals are in power or whatever. I think the public would smell a rat. Um, so they had they had no choice but to say that the mandate for this commissioner is to look at whatever he wants. And if he wants to go all the way back to the 1990s, when the NDP government of the day did raise betting limits in the casinos, and some people have made an argument that that was sort of the genesis of this whole money laundering thing, uh, he's free to do that. But I thought Horgan was right when he said that, by comparison, it's going to be kind of small potatoes back then. I remember that. I remember when they raised the betting limit because it, it was a story of the day. that I think the limit... Uh, in a casino in BC on a like a single hand of blackjack was $25 was the maximum you could bet 
and the NDP raised it to $500. And the rationale for that was we're losing business to Washington State. Like people were getting on buses to go gamble in casinos in Bellingham and stuff. So we had to raise the betting limit here to keep the business at home. That was the rationale. And that's what they said. And Horgan also said, you know, the, the footprint of China as a source of illicit funds and dirty money was way smaller. There was no such thing as all this Chinese money flowing into BC like it's flowing in like a tsunami now. So you're right. I think I think that they've calculated that even if they do go back to the 90s, it's not going to hurt us as much as it's going to hurt the liberals. Because the, the, the betting limit on a hand of blackjack in a BC casino now is $100,000. Can you imagine that? $100,000. So, you know, the money launderers have loved it here, and I think the liberals are very vulnerable on it. That's a lot of money for sure. And it is, you know, I think people are hoping that this inquiry is going to take basically what the German reports have done and the Maureen Maloney report into real estate and money laundering and kind of expand on them, get into some of the more organized crime elements, who's doing what, where. You know, I think there's still a risk, though, that you spend two years and millions of dollars, 10, 20 millions of dollars. Lawyers get rich and fat off this thing. Everyone's got a lawyer. Government's got a lawyer. All the lawyers all over the place. And you produce something at the end that doesn't substantially inform the public any more than two very excellent Peter German reports and a somewhat suspect Maureen Maloney report, which is the the one that focuses on real estate and contains an economic model that I can't explain and doesn't appear to be that accurate, but is nonetheless very interesting. So it's great politics. I'm still not entirely sure what we're going to get at the end of it, but by then, maybe no one will care anymore because it will have uh, just been a political exercise. Well, I think they've taken a look at the experience in Quebec with the Charbonneau Commission that looked into corruption in the construction industry there, and there's been a lot of comparators between that experience there. And some people have said we should do the same thing here. And I think the government has listened to that because the way they've structured this public inquiry is very similar to what they had in Quebec. So if you look at the commissioner, for example, the commissioner in in Quebec was France Charbonneau, and she was a former judge and a former prosecutor, just like this guy Cullen, who has been appointed in BC, former judge, uh, actually he's an existing judge, still on the bench and a former prosecutor. So that's very similar. The terms of reference are also very similar because some people have pointed out that, oh, you know, this is really not kind of a, an exercise where a commissioner, even even if you give them an, uh, investigative powers, they can't charge anybody and put them in jail. And that's true. Only the Crown can charge people or approve charges. But if you take a look at the terms of reference of this inquiry, it says that the commissioner must work with the cops and... He has to tell the cops what he's doing. And if he discovers any evidence of potential wrongdoing, criminal, he's got to turn that over to the police. And it was similar in Quebec. That Quebec commission worked very closely with the Quebec police and Crown. And in Quebec, they arrested a bunch of people and charged a bunch of people and put some people in jail and recovered a lot of money. So, you know, there's a lot of hope and optimism at the start of this thing that maybe some people will be put in jail. Yeah. That's true, although... Maybe it will, maybe not. Remember the Bingo Gate inquiry coming out of the 90s, which the NDP, to their credit, launched themselves. Uh, this is the charity scam scandal in Nanaimo involving Dave Stupich, went to a public inquiry, muddled along, cost an enormous amount of money, millions of dollars, went for years, 
the NDP government fell and the Liberals took that thing out back and put it out of its misery. Yeah. It was a ginormous waste of time. I've used ginormous twice this week. I don't know what's <laughs> going on there. It was a gigantic waste of time and money. Did not conclude anything. Wasn't even allowed to finish. And I think for every great inquiry, there's also an example of one that just, oh, yeah. you know, puts off into the woods and you never see it again kind of thing. So I think the Liberals are secretly worried that some of their people would be called to testify at this thing. I mean, Horgan at one point this week was asked, who do you want to see on the witness stand? And he just kind of chuckled. And I thought, he's obviously not going to answer a question like that. But the chuckle was revealing that he's very pleased with the potential for Rich Coleman to be called to the stand or Mike DeYoung or maybe even, who knows, maybe even Christy Clark, you know. This would be the lip, the NDP would love this. And think about think about some of those whistleblowers that have come forward on the money laundering story that were part of the uh, the gambling enforcement team in British Columbia who got fired or have come forward and done interviews with media saying, I warned the liberals and they didn't do anything about it. Those people could almost certainly be called to the stand to testify. And that's not going to be a good day for the liberals. When yeah. some of these people are on the stand. You know, the NDP in, love this. In some provinces, the government changes. And one of the first steps that the new government does is order some type of review or blue ribbon panel on all the failures of the past government and the economic policies that didn't work and all of those problems. And then, you know, kind of produces it and points to their enemies and say, look how incompetent you were. Yeah. We didn't do that in BC. The NDP True. did not do any type of performance review or economic review. They went this route instead, which was... I think if you step back and look at it one day, we're going to look at the genius of picking this issue, commissioning Peter German to do not one but two reports, tying it into the drug overdose, tying it into the real estate market, tying it into the luxury vehicles, which is a very visible part of wealth in Vancouver, crafting those on a timeline that lands you halfway through the mandate, and then getting your union contacts, the BCGEU, some of your friendly organizations to whip up public support for an inquiry acquiesce to the inquiry as if you didn't really want it, but the people want it, and hit that two-year timeline to bring it in right before the next election. If you t if you started with a blank piece of paper at the beginning of the NDP mandate and crafted a way to do this, it would look exactly like what we've got. It's absolutely brilliant, and the public spot into it, because what you've described, I've kind of described it as kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that's been put together, and there's all these different pieces, right? Like you mentioned the casinos and the real estate values going through the roof and thousands of people dying from mm -hmm. drug overdoses and each part of the puzzle gets put together and you're left with this picture and suddenly the public goes oh my god it's all connected you know yeah and and it's believable like as could people see people dying on the streets i mean i saw a guy have an overdose in the street a couple of days ago people can see they can't afford a home in the city where they grew up you know, so it's right in front of our eyes. They can people can see these Lamborghinis driving around Vancouver, and they, who who's who the heck's driving all these Ferraris? Yeah. So I think you know it really kind of connects with people and their perception of the problem, and people are buying into it. Yeah. And I think this is why there's a there's been a lot of public support for the uh, for the public inquiry, and for the and the liberals are befuddled by it because they put up uh, Michael Lee as the spokesperson on it who's probably the cleanest guy they got he's like because he's the most invisible guy you very ever rarely see him do anything here around the legislature but he's a, he's a first term MLA so he's he's only elected a couple of years ago and that's why he's there because he wasn't around for a lot of this stuff and they want someone clean on there and when you talk to him about it he you know he can't assail this thing even when you ask him, what do you think about the choice of this commissioner well yeah he's good 
you know, and Michael Lee's a lawyer. I go, do you know him? Yeah, I know him. He's a very respectable guy. It's almost kind of like, ugh. Yeah. I wish they had put a political hack in there that we could question, but we can't. They put in this unassailable guy as the commissioner. So, I mean, it's just perfect. Oh, it's it perfect is. politics it for is. the NDP. We'll look back on it, it really one day is. and analyze it that way. Moving on to our second big topic this week, yeah. the legislature spending scandal. So, the very brief nutshell recap, in case you've missed 17 of the previous 18 podcasts we've done where we've discussed this. <laughs> Essentially, uh, last November, we had the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms, so the two top officials in the legislature – the CEO and the head of security of the building, frog-marched out of here by police, this unprecedented um, series of allegations leveled against them by Speaker Daryl Plekis, who revealed he'd been doing a one-year undercover investigation with his chief of staff, Alan Mullen, into all sorts of uh, spending allegations against these two men. The RCMP announced they were doing a probe. The two special prosecutors were appointed. The men were put on suspension with pay. So there was a lot of political football on that for quite a few months, uh, kicking around uh, this case as the partisan uh, folks do in the legislature. And finally, a couple months ago, MLA said, look, we got to bring in somebody who knows what they're doing here. And they found former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin. And they said, can you come in and, and help us out? She shows up. She does a month and a bit of investigation. Her report, all, how many here, 53, 55 pages of, 54 pages of this thing, lands with a thud in the legislature on Thursday. And along with it comes the announcement that the clerk of the legislature, Craig James, has suddenly retired as part of a non-financial settlement with the legislature, as MLAs put it. I don't entirely know what that means, but we'll talk about that. He is now retired. The other individual, Gary Lynch, the sergeant at arms, was found to have done nothing wrong in this report. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, we're going to go through it now. The top level of the report here, depending on how you want to do this math, is seven allegations leveled against G uh, Gary Lynch, the sergeant at arms, all sorts of things, spending on suits, lavish international trips, um, that kind of stuff. Nothing found to have been done wrong. Eight allegations leveled against Craig James, the clerk. Um, similar things, plus a bunch of retirement benefits, vacation payouts, uh, that type of thing, a wood splitter, a truckload of alcohol. Four of the eight allegations were found to have uh, been misconduct and personal benefits. So it's around 27% of Daryl Plekis's uh, allegations actually panning out in this report. So he's batting 270? That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. What, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's one way to look at it. The other yeah. way, uh, according to Speaker Daryl Plekis, and we'll hear him in this clip right now, he'll okay. give his uh, his view of how he, he views this, um, this report uh, when caught by reporters in the hallway after the report came out. I can say I'm happy with the conclusions of McLaughlin's report. I think it says that you know, the issues which I had raised uh, were accurate. I mean, of course, it's not everything, but I'm reminded that her terms of reference were very narrow. Uh, so there's a number of things which weren't considered. So he, he says that he thinks the issues which he has raised were accurate, which is true. There are some accurate ones in here. Let's go through the accurate ones first, Smitty. Okay. And then we can get to the, uh, the stuff that didn't pan out. But clearly... Um, you know, it's funny when you cover public uh, spending issues like this. Sometimes it are the it's the small things that really piss people off, for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, and one of the things that really ticked people off was the suits, these fancy suits that uh, Craig James expensed while on a trip to the United Kingdom in London. 
uh, leather shoes and cufflinks and these uh, uh, suits from a high-end London menswear store. Um, he got two of them. And that is a situation where that was examined along with some luggage that he purchased, thousands of dollars in luggage. And Beverly McLaughlin heard his explanations. He was he was apparently going to try and change the uniform at the legislature from robes into suits. And he was creating a luggage pool for MLAs to use <laughs> luggage. She took a look at him. She said, no dice. That does not make sense. Those were clearly bought for personal use. And those are both misconduct issues, uh, one large misconduct issue of uh, buying these things for personal nature that seems to make sense to me buying suits uh, abroad and wearing them all around and that's that's the first one a lot of people were upset by that suit thing too this has obviously been a bad day for craig james on this report and he has resigned his job i think he resigned before he was going to get fired probably after after being found uh that he had committed misconduct, according to this, the conclusions of this report, he was cleared on some of the allegations, as you mentioned. Um, there's other, there's a few other, um, you know, like the woods. Remember the famous wood splitter? Like she found, like M- McLaughlin was kind of found that buying this wood splitter that James said he wanted to have on the grounds just in case there was an earthquake and they needed to cut up some wood to heat the legislature <laughs> building, which just sounds totally comical to me, but. She she bought that and said, well, okay, yep, I'll accept that. But she did find misconduct that he brought it to his house, right? And used it. Yeah. So, you know, he's gone and it was bad for him. So he's a loser on this one. The other the other one he lost on was his huge suite of expensive benefits inside the building. And oh, it gets yeah. a little complicated, but there's some debate on retirement benefits. So should the clerk get... Um, salary for another year if he was to resign or should his estate get three times his salary if he dies and should his life insurance be extended beyond the age of 65 and there's a bunch of issues there in which essentially uh, Craig James tries to argue that you know oh the speaker wanted this in some cases and you know there's oh it's the policies and notes to file and certain arguments uh McLaughlin has none of that and in the kind of personal benefit category of all of these um types of uh, extra bonus retirement allowance things, she finds that uh, he was doing that for personal benefit as well, engineering yeah. these these payouts essentially for himself, uh, some of which he got and some of which he did not get. But, uh, well, the those... most disturbing one or the biggest, the biggest number in this report is $257,988 as a, a quote-unquote retirement benefit for Craig James that... Beverly McLaughlin concluded was misconduct in 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 uh, him effectively awarding himself this money. Um, so that's for taxpayers. That's the one that hurts the most, I would say. Um, the other guy who's been at the center of this thing, Gary Lenz, though, is is cleared in this report. Yeah, and uh, he held a news conference this week in which he said he's he's done nothing wrong and he wants his job back. Yeah, let's hear now, let's hear his clip here. We'll hear uh, Gary Lenz. Uh, talk to us about that. There are systems and there are there there are policies in place, procedures in place within the assembly. I followed those policies. I followed the procedures, and anything along my roles and my mandate, I fully fulfilled in all aspects of it. If and my actions that I have done to date, I stand by, and I stand by uh, Justice Ben McLaughlin's report that also say that I've done nothing wrong or no misconduct. So stand by his actions, as you were saying, Smitty. Does he get his job back now, though? I mean, well, this this thing ain't over. This is the thing. There's still a police investigation going on. 
there are still public prosecutors in place, so it's not over yet. Now, if he's cleared by the cops, which conceivably he will be. Assuming we know what he's accused of, which we still don't. True. But, you know, he's been cleared by the former chief justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, but that's part of that's always been one of the frustrating parts of this is that we think we understand it, but every time you talk to Daryl Plekis or his chief of staff, Ella Mullen, they say, "This is the tip of an iceberg. It's what was the argument a grenade? It's about the beginning of a larger explosion." Or the the, the inference is always that there is much worse and much more to come, and that we only know a bit of it. But it's hard to pass judgment on people without that information, and all we have as of today is. Gary Lenz, the sergeant at arms, has done nothing wrong. Yeah, and now he's claiming vindication, and he wants his job back. He says he's cooperating with the police, but he expects to be cleared by the police too. And I think Daryl Plekis could be in a bit of a a tough spot if if this guy continues to be cleared as a result of these investigations. And then wouldn't you be wouldn't you really have to give the guy his job back? Uh, and if you don't, does he turn around and potentially sue? uh for the way he's been treated and that exposes bc taxpayers even more so i think that taxpayers are not out of the woods on this thing they you know they could they could take a bath some more i think for as for plekus himself he was criticized about the way he handled this whole thing and he's criticized in this report Beverly McLaughlin criticizes some of the stuff that he did here yeah before we get to that let's just okay. let's just finish the things that didn't end up panning out because there was okay. a lot of media attention paid to a number of these allegations that didn't go anywhere. Uh, one of the big ones being these lavish international right. trips. So the inference is you go to the United Kingdom, you go to China, you go to uh, Scotland, you went to Washington State. There was a lot of coverage on this idea of uh, of an earthquake conference in Washington State, which ended up becoming a whale-watching trip and a large-scale evacuation training seminar that was a Seattle Mariners game at Safeco Field. Yeah. Um, McLaughlin just kind of says, that's fine. You know, these international trips are what they are. Um, those are not misconduct. Uh, uh, but some of the spending on the trips, on the luggage and the things there were a problem. There was also... Smitty, an infamous photo in one of your columns, the so-called corruption watch oh, yes. that Alan Mullen, chief of staff, dubbed. It was a House of Commons watch bought by Craig James in London, brought back here, given to the speaker. He didn't want it, featured prominently in one of uh, the speaker's reports. One of those little things that really got people sort of caught the public's even attention. though it was worth what like 80 bucks yeah it's not bucks. an expensive watch so the all of all of the um gifts watches notebooks cufflinks she said that was okay she said that was fine there's yeah. a couple grand there that uh the policies are unclear here at the well, legislature that... some stuff does get given as gifts others who knows but it's not something you can just suddenly out of the blue in 2019 materialize as a hammer and thump someone with when no one here as ever, there are no rules. There's no rules on that stuff. Yeah, and for a lot of people in the public, and I noticed sort of the, some of the backlash on Twitter uh, in the aftermath of this report, people are saying like, wait a second, what about all these crazy trips that you just described? Like there was one trip to, to Scotland where they went to some parliamentary conference and they decided to take a cultural excursion to St. Andrew's Golf Course in Scotland. And you're like, you're like come on. But McLaughlin, like, McLaughlin says, look, like sometimes you have personal parts of trips. Sometimes you have schedules that fall apart. Um, she took a look at all that stuff and gave it the old pass. So I well, think... You know what, though? In some ways, that didn't surprise me because from the very start, these guys were saying, look, that was allowed. 
Well, every- and show me the rule where it's written down that we can't do these trips. And the fact is, it's they're not. It's not written down. And not only that, MLAs have abused it far yeah. worse for years. Remember yeah. Linda Reed's safari adventure with her husband, uh, safari adventure to South Africa, which she had to repay her first class air tickets. One of the arguments has always been. It's a bit hypocritical for MLAs to pretend they don't like this when every year, like clockwork, they line up to go on these junkets and pork out on our dime uh, for ridiculous Commonwealth adventures to nowhere. But the clerk and the sergeant at arms suddenly are the ones who've done something wrong. They're vindicated of that in this report. I think going forward, you, you as MLAs here, you'd have to have some internal thought process on whether you continue those trips. There's one to Uganda coming up this year. I can't imagine the speaker would allow a Ugandan trip, although I already hear mumbling that that's uh, getting organized, which would be insane. You're either going to stop these things or you're not, but you can't, you, you can't do it just by these, just blaming some people. I think some of these trips are legit. Like if you want to go to a major Canadian parliamentary conference, for example, or maybe a regional conference between British Columbia and Washington State. There's an organization called PENWAR, which is a Pacific Northwest uh, region of uh, Oregon, Washington State, Alberta, Utah, that has produced some good work in the past. Now, to me, I've always thought some of these are legit and some of them are just total wasteful junkets. Like, you know, let's go to some parliamentary conference in the Bahamas in the middle of the winter. I mean, come on. This is just a free vacation for you guys. But it's not suddenly a crime. But it's not against the rules. That's the thing. It's not against the rules. So I think one of the recommendations out of McLaughlin's report this week is like, hey, guys, maybe you should have some rational, reasonable rules about what's a reasonable expense around here. And, and, you know, I think for a lot of people in the public reading that going – uh, yeah. Like, how come we haven't had that before? Well, there's a page on this report here to go back to the issue of Daryl Plekis, which uh, if you're going to read any page in the McLaughlin report, um, I would start with page eight and maybe a little bit on page seven where it talks about, here's part of the problem here. You got a bunch of MLAs who are spar- supposed to be overseeing this place on this all committee called Lamsey. They have, to put it charitably, done Jack Diddley for quite a while now. <laughs> yeah. uh, only when the scandals blow up in their face do they get involved. McLaughlin says they they did not have accountability on the permanent officers here. They didn't meet very often. And then she gets into the issue of whose job is what, what does the speaker oversee, what does the clerk oversee. And I'm just going to read, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting page where the speaker, she outlines how the speaker did this investigation. He said nothing about these concerns as they were going on. He approved many of them. He allowed them to happen, and behind the scenes, he conducted his investigation. And she says, It's not entirely clear why the Speaker did not bring his concerns to the attention of the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms forthwith, as one would expect of a supervising officer, or in any event, before taking the dramatic action of having them publicly expelled from the grounds of the Legislative Assembly building. And she says that the Speaker um, was worried the clerk was too powerful uh, to handle with that. But then she goes on and says, and here's another quote, What emerges from the evidence is that the speaker viewed the matters that concerned him through the lens of a police investigation and criminal prosecution, rather than the lens of an administrator. He seems to have seen his task as to build a credible, criminal-type case against Mr. James and Mr. Lenz, rather than promptly confronting and correcting the administrative practices that he questioned. He focused on an investigatory line of inquiry at the expense of of his duty to ensure that the affairs of the Legislative Assembly were properly administered on a current basis. 
which is in my mind what I'm reading that saying, well, here's part of the problem we always thought, which was, so Craig James bought a watch at the House of Commons and a suit. That's not allowed, I don't think, and you shouldn't. But you could, as an administrator, as a boss, say, you know what? That's not acceptable. Pay it back. Here's a new policy. Here's a policy going forward. Let's get the MLAs in here. We'll settle this. You know, you can't expense this. You can't expense that. And instead, he said, very interesting. I approve this expense. Well, behind the scenes, crafting the mother of all police cases into what he says are criminal matters, many of which have been dismissed out of hand here by the former chief justice. So uh, what do you make of that passage? It was was almost like he was like an undercover agent and he was watching these guys and kind of pretending he was going along with it while secretly observing everything they were spending and recording it up and and running an, an investigation. And I guess this report is kind of a good news, bad news thing for Plekis. Because obviously the you know the passages you just read are not are critical of Plekis and that's bad for him. Uh, one of the guys that was marched out of here under a police escort, Gary Lenz, has been cleared in this report. That's bad for Plekis. On the other hand, uh, Gary uh, Craig James, the clerk, was found to have been um, committed misconduct in this report, just like. Plekis said in some cases in in some of his case in, in some half, of his in, in half in, of the cases in some of it but if if Plekis had done nothing maybe we would never have found this stuff out so I think um, there's good there's upside and downside in this report for Plekis and the way he handled this and how it all worked out and I think on total at the end of the day I think most people will look at this and think that Plekis probably did the public's a favor and some good overall in exposing some of this misconduct by Craig James and triggering a lot of changes that we're going to, that we've seen already around the legislature and that we'll probably see more in terms of greater transparency and more control over the public's money and the way it's spent here. So he certainly takes a few knocks in this report, but you know, I think in some, in some ways he's vindicated in other ways he's not. The problem though, is if you totaled up all the money that's been spent on investigating this and I and I hear that Beverly McLaughlin was able to charge up to ten thousand dollars a day in oh, in doing this investigation. So you start to work that out for a month. Then you start to work out the lawyers that both Lamsey, the legislature, has obtained, and they got a top notch labor lawyer, Marcia McNeil, who doesn't come cheap. She's the best. You look at the yeah. lawyers that the speaker's office has commissioned. You look at the the what we're on month six or seven of an RCMP probe with two private lawyers hired as special prosecutors. I get that people are upset at the $80 watch and the $2,000 suit, but we're into hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions already on this process, and we're not even got to the point where if there's going to be lawsuits. I question if this was the way to do it. And I think the quote that we read from, from McLaughlin was telling in the sense that although it satisfied the speaker's desire to conduct his own police probe, that in a better circumstance, you would have had an administrator who found a way to do this um, in a different way. And, yeah. and uh, although yeah. we're talking about saving the taxpayers' money here, you giveth with one hand and taketh with the other. It's all your money. We're in the glue for a ton of money on on the way investigating well, this. I think that's a great point that maybe you could argue, you know, the cure is worse than the, than the disease. On the other hand, there's another argument that maybe – Something like this, as crazy as it's, as it's been, and this is one of the weirdest political scandals I've seen around this place in a long time, and that's saying something because it's a pretty nutty place. 
in some ways, maybe this was the type of thing that was required. Yeah. A, a guy like Plekis, who's kind of this oddball, strange kind of outsider to come in here and as, as wacky as the whole thing has been to really give this place a, a kick in the butt and turn things upside down in, in doing it in a weird way. But maybe that's the only way it could have got some results because this, this type of nonsense has been going on a long time with yeah. these lack of controls and lavish spending and overseas trips and who knows how much money has gone swirling down the drain over the decades you know, no, it's so it's point. been a fascinating story. Politicians we've seen, you know, Smitty, they need to reach a critical mass of scandal before they act. And I think that's a great point because if he didn't do it this way, yeah, maybe if he did bury it through the HR channels and the reports and the best practices, we'd all still be sitting here not knowing what's going on. So there is that counterpoint that by – And it ain't over. No. By destro- by detonating the dynamite, we can rebuild this place yeah. better than it was <laughs> Maybe before. Maybe you just had, you had to tear it down. We should play this clip though because okay. he's asked by our colleague Justine Hunter, the Globe and Mail, uh, who starts this clip, would you have done this any differently? And, and here's what uh, Speaker Daryl Plekis has to say. Can I ask just on specifically on the report, she says, is that you, you view the matters that concerned you through the lens of a police investigation – rather than the lens of an administrator. Do you feel, looking back over the whole history of how this was handled, do you think there's any way you could have done this bit differently? No, absolutely not. Uh, I am reminded that I'm not the first person who's raised concerns. Previous auditor generals have sought an administrative approach. Uh, Whistleblowers have sought an administrative approach. Uh, That didn't seem to work very well. Uh, and I'm reminded that some of the misconduct uh, revealed by uh, McLaughlin uh, happened before my time. Uh, so all I did was bring it to light. So he sort of gets to that point that other people have tried the administrative approach. We've had scathing audits here by the Auditor General um, and others, and nothing happened, which maybe backs up your point that uh, you got to tear it down before you can rebuild it better. I don't know. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's true. And the other thing for people to keep in mind is is this is not over because there there's still a police investigation going on with two special prosecutors in place. There is an audit underway of the of the legislature, right, by the Auditor General. And there's also the so-called workplace review that Plekis has hyped quite a bit and is keeps suggesting like, "Whoa, just wait until you see this one. And this is the one where he said that he has had, you know, something like a couple of dozen whistleblowers uh, come to him s- privately in his office to tell him stories of other terrible things that have happened around the building. And there's a, re- a report being compiled on that. So there are still more shoes to drop here. So. And there's another uh, workplace review that that the uh, MLAs on Lamsey have commissioned independently as well. Okay. So there's, there's, there's yeah, but it's uh it, it's we're going to we're going to we'll, be talking we'll be, we'll be talking about it in another podcast. Oh it? my it's, goodness. This is not over. We didn't even get to the other stuff that's happening here at the legislature. Next week is a break week, but we'll still be here chatting, maybe we'll catch up on some of the the other stuff, and then like we're sky ha- train to the North Shore. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that next. The week. Massey Bridge, uh, they're, they're moving uh, the Massey Tunnel replacement thing. Is teachers kind of, teacher strike? Oh maybe? sweet mercy! There's so much of stuff going. So on. much news, and then the week after that, we may be talking about this again too, because one of the things Mike Farmworth, the government house leader, said is that in the last week of the session, they're going to strike an all party committee to go out there and find a new clerk, someone everyone right. can support. 
which will be a fascinating exercise because the way this job has been passed down uh, in previous generations is with a tip of the old hat and a yeah. tinkle of the old scotch glass and yeah. you're the clerk and you get this great job, right? And so now we're going to go out and we're going to cast out and find somebody new who comes in here and puts the boots on and starts uh, kicking this place around. That's a, probably a great thing for us too. So yeah. we'll come back to that as well. But thank you so much for listening this week on our Special edition, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your local podcasts and uh, follow Mike Smith in the province, myself in the Vancouver Sun. We're both on the tweeters. Uh, feel free to get in touch if you have any questions and want to be part of the podcast. And uh, thanks so much for listening. See you next week.